You know, Jay, when you travel to the British Isles, they have a wonderful phrase over there, which is cheeky. (laughs) And we talk about Will Page on the show so much on the podcast, I should say. It is a show, but it's also a podcast. And, uh, you know, he is so smart. He is such a well-rounded individual. He knows far more than I do. Uh, And I, I could never get to the level of stuff that he knows. But he's also a musician. He's also a DJ. He's also... Uh, he's just super well-versed, and it's such a treat when we check in with him. Yeah, I learn something every time I talk to Will Page. Um, you know, For those that don't know, he's a former chief economist at Spotify, but he's a lot more, as you mentioned. You know, He's the author of Tarzan Economics. Um, that book is also out uh, with the title Pivot. I believe that's the paperback version of it. Same book, great book, highly recommend it. He's a podcaster too. One of my favorite podcasts is Bubble Trouble. Check it out. And as you mentioned, he's a talented DJ. Uh, look him up. Um, we're big fans of Will Page. We're so honored to call him a friend and a colleague. And we have a special episode of the Your Morning Coffee podcast, and it's our conversation with Will Page. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. And now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Let's kick it off by talking about the state of the industry, Um, some things that you point out that maybe some analysts missed and let's talk about kind of the, the will page figure or the will page breakdown. Okay, Jay. So the business that we're in is a C with a circle on it. We're in the copyright business. Simples. So what I do once a year is I go into a back cave and try and put together the value of copyright. And copyright is not just what the DSCAPs and the BMIs collect in America, the PROs, the collecting societies, but it's what do the labels generate from their copyrights? What do the publishers get directly from their copyrights? I got three cooks in the kitchen, and I want to merge them all together, add labels to collecting societies to publishers, rip out all the double counting and adjustments and addbacks, which involves a lot of paracetamol and an awful lot more whiskey. And when you get to your final answer, you can step back and say, that's the value of the business I'm in. And the value of the business in 2021, which was a long time ago, admittedly, the value in 2021 came to $39.6 billion. 
Now, we have been laughed at across the media verticals as being the poor man of media, the business that killed itself. Napster destroyed us. Not anymore, Jay. 39.6 rounds up to four. This is a $40 billion baby now. I think the industry can take pride in what we've achieved and what is a relatively short space of time in terms of turning around our tanker and generating more value than the year before. $40 billion in the value of copyright for 2021. And if you're guessing, Will, uh, so that's 2021. What do you think those numbers are trending like as we, you know, as we fiz- as we are sitting here in 2023? Yeah. So just to capture the time lag, it's almost like a time zone difference. Um, the IFPI publishes labels figures in March, April, the year after. The collecting studies, ironically, they take longer, <laughs> just like they do with distribution of royalties. They take longer, but they get their numbers out the gate around October. So it's usually in November I get to publish this work and produce the analysis. So what would I say in November of this year with regards to last year, to your question, Mikey? Um, it's going to be bigger. It's going to be a lot bigger. And I'll give you two reasons why before we even discuss streaming and label income. Firstly, if you look at the analysis, and it's all available on tarsaneconomics.com, you'll find it in the undercurrent section. If you look at the analysis, you can see that the PROs, performing right collections, let's say restaurants, hotels, sporting events, that obviously suffered greatly during the pandemic. It was silenced. So they're not even back to where they were in 2019. Now, 2022 was the first year we had, which was arguably clear of the pandemic. So you're going to see a huge bounce back in revenues there. And then on the publisher side, you're seeing incredible numbers from music publishing companies. When you look at the sort of major accounts of Universal, Warner, Sony, publishing is off the charts. And that's almost driven by catch-up. Maybe labels did, did the TikTok deal first, publishers did it second. We have a time lag there. So before you even look at the label side, I think there's going to be a a windfall of money coming from publishers and collecting studies, which will feature into this report. And I don't like guesstimations, but we could be talking about a a $45 billion business when I come out of the back cave this year. That'd be phenomenal. Then it's like, how long before Will comes out of his back cave and talks about music being worth a five? Not a two or a one, but a five. But for the industry and for your listeners, I mean, this is a crucial bit of work. I don't charge for it. My passion is teaching and education. But it's just to simply say, you know, if if there's people in the policy domain listening to this podcast, don't go to your local senator or congressman and say, I work for a $25 billion business. Tell them you work for a $40 billion business. Bigger numbers captures bigger attention spans. So there's a purpose for this is to give the industry a number we can rally around and say, that's what we're worth. Let's talk about configurations a little bit. I think there's a little bit of misinformation uh, out there on the behavior of music fans. So much of what's happening today is fans are expressing their fandom by purchasing things like cassettes or vinyl. And I've read some of your comments and I think they're they're spot on and, and very fascinating. Talk a little bit about the evolution of these different configurations. Well, you just mentioned cassettes. I'm just back from Toronto, hence my asthma-suffering husky voice, thanks to that plume, which I believe was people in Quebec burning English-language text. I think that's what the cause of it was. Um, So you forgive me on that, but I did find Sonic Boom Record Shop, which was a pilgrimage for me. didn't do my bank balance any favours. But they had uh, Bluetooth-equipped cassette players. (laughs) I thought, there's a sign of the times. 
stacked by the counter, like where the where the supermarket would put the sweeties. Like you can't leave the shop without buying a Bluetooth enabled cassette player in 2023. But the physical business is fascinating. On, on, on a good, I could wax lyrical about this for the rest of the pod, but let me just break it into like two or three buckets. One, let's just remember the supply side effect. Supply creates demand. We have supply side bottlenecks across this business. So one of the reasons that the vinyl revolution isn't bigger is because we can't press up enough of it. And the hat tip to Bill Heim and Fred Goldrin and the team at Pressing Business, um, they're building supply side capacity in the country of Poland, ironically, which is going to help solve that. And I know detailed work about what they're building there is pretty phenomenal in terms of what do you want to do day and date with an album release? Do you want to do 10,000 records? You're going to sell 10,000. You want to press 100,000 vinyls and charge $30? You're going to sell 100,000. How do you build America? You supply the train line, people demand the houses. This is going to be a supply side solution to vinyl. Secondly, just on the revenue numbers, interesting to note that vinyl has outpaced streaming revenue growth in America for two years straight. And for 13 years now, people have been saying it's a blip, not a trend. The party will be over. It'll run its way. Now, for two years now, vinyl is growing faster in percentage terms than streaming income. That's bonkers. And then thirdly, and it's my favorite stat here in the UK, and it's consistent. I've watched this over time. Based on anecdote and survey and data, 60%-ish of British vinyl buyers don't own a record player, which makes me think they're buying merchandise. We're in the merchandise business. Yeah. Harry Styles, Orange Vinyl of Harry's House, you know, in the first month of release, that was anything up to a quarter, a third of his income. How many of those records have actually been opened? <laughs> in fact, Jay, I really hope the right record was inside because we could be in for a nasty <laughs> shock here. But an awful lot of what we're buying, we're not consuming, which, by the way, is very similar to the book industry. 80% of books that are sold are not consumed by the reader. Now, we look at my bookshelf wow. here. I see Karl Popper. I didn't read that book. I just bought it so I could feel as clever as my brothers and sisters. But open it? No way. <laughs> I'm faking it. So it's important to think about what drives the book industry, which is, you know, something other than the consumption of the book itself could also be driving the vinyl industry. I want to feel closer to the artist. All I can do on my phone is touch a piece of glass, buying a vinyl record for $30, which, by the way, for 10 songs, that's expensive music. Buying a record for thirty dollars makes me feel closer, and I'm cool with that. And millions of people are making that decision today. Yeah, you know, uh, well, when I was in college and taking an economics class, I remember taking a business cycles class, which was fascinating. You know, and and if anything, I learned in economics is whatever is up will go down, and vice versa, more or less. You know, the will the vinyl boom, let's call it, will it it'll it eventually come down and then will it go back up again? You know, is it a generational thing, do you think? Or do you think this is a, a real lasting uh, component of our business that will be around for the next generation as well? Very lasting. And I want to repeat the supply side solutions coming out in play. I mean, to see what's pressing business are built in Poland, it's just jaw dropping for me. And there's many other examples I could cite, but. We're working on the supply side bottleneck issue. And when they're solved, then we're only on the 30 yard line and it's first and 10. This is just the start of vinyl's drive. There's a whole long way to go before we get to that end zone. And I just think the notion of day and date release of vinyl with streaming, we can't discuss that right now because of the bottlenecks in supply. Resolve them and we're going to see big artists going day and date with A, here's my song or album on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, YouTube, the big four horsemen. We'll come to that later. But B, 
here are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of vinyl for $30. And then one final twist, just, just if you buy into what I'm saying here, and if I'm talking out my ass, I apologize to your, your worthy listeners. But if you buy into it, also think about royalties here for a second. The way I teach this to students is to remind people that the greatest selling vinyl record of all time was Saturday Night Fever. And in amongst the 20 odd songs, there's a song there called Calypso Strut by Ralph McDonald. Nobody and their dog has played that record. But that mechanical royalty for that song was equal to what the Bee Gees got for staying alive. Because with vinyl, we don't know what's being consumed, so everything is allocated equally. The filler gets the same as the killer. And that's just another anomaly that we're dealing with here, is vinyl, A, drives big bucks back to artists, but B, the allocation of royalties is going to be very different to artists too. That's a great point. I am seeing anecdotally the turnaround times go from maybe 10 months uh, a year ago to closer to 10 weeks for some of the production mm-hmm. runs that we're doing right now. And that's super encouraging. Yeah. And it's that's discretionary in terms of what the ambitions are. Is it just a simple vinyl press up? Are we going to go double gatefold with additional text? So, the, the, But imagine from 10 weeks down to a month, then we really are talking about, you know, day and date vinyl push. Yeah. We don't know how uh, that chapter is going to read, but I look forward to reading it. Yeah. And will will once the supply chain things get get uh, more robust, will the, will we still be able to hold those prices as high as they are right now? I think they can go higher. Oh. I genuinely think they can go higher. I mean, let's take a look at what we're willing to spend on products today. Two loaves of bread today in London cost eleven pounds from a half decent bakery. So two loaves of bread, which takes a family three days to digest, is gone for the same amount of money as 100 million songs offline, on demand and ad-free. Prices are going up everywhere. Willing to spend is going up everywhere. I really do think a vinyl could go higher. Yeah, a $50 vinyl might sound a little bit you know, against the grain just now. I think it'll be the rule, not the exception within two years. Time. I think you're absolutely right, because I just spent $100 on a double vinyl came with two posters and some other really cool things, colored vinyl. And I cheerfully uh, paid that hundred dollars for that collectible because it was a limited edition run as well. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. I was listening to a really cool interview or reading it uh, that you did with Dan Runcy over at Trapital, And he's the best. Yeah. It's one of our favorite sources. And um, you talked about, herbivores and carnivores talk a little bit about that i thought that was fascinating it's a phrase i came up with on the dan runsey trapital podcast last year and boy did it catch on it's just i was put on the spot dan like you guys makes me think on the spot (laughs) if you do improv comedy that's when you perform at your best and i came up with this analysis of like the streaming market all we've known is spotify's up apple's up youtube's up amazon's up everyone's up we're herbivores. We're growing each other's gardens, as we say in Scotland. Well, not to use the word saturation here, but what happens when the only way I can be up is by getting you down, which is how your telcos behave in America, AT&T, Comcast, how telcos behave here, Virgin Media, Sky. The only way I can grow my subscriber base is by stealing some of Jay's. And the only way Jay can grow is stealing back some of mine. So when do the herbivores then become the carnivores? So some research that I've done for this podcast and um, kind of feeling this question was going to come up. So I would put the current tally of subscribers in America 
and this is an important number for you and your listeners, uh, 128 million. Let's be clear what we're discussing there. That is inclusive, inclusive of family plans, exclusive of trials or passive participation. So I'm not including Amazon Prime or YouTube TV, which could feature in the music bundles. In terms of standalone subscribers and their family participation, we're almost at 130 million. There's only 110 million qualifying households in America. That is a home of at least, at least one person with a streaming-enabled phone and the ability to pay for it. So we have more subscribers than we have households. And if you look at bundled packages like Apple One, that's a household proposition. One person needs to pay. Everyone in that home doesn't need to pay because they're all covered under the bundled offering. So we're at that point where saturation is going to hit kind of soon. There's a few other sort of modifications here too, just to bring to light Sirius XM. What's that, 33.6 million in America? Do those people also have a subscription account? Are they paying for Spotify as well as Sirius? Or do they use Sirius and therefore not Spotify? I'm not American. You've got a better angle in, on that than me. And then I throw in another thing there, TikTok. You know, based on sensor tower data, TikTok peaked at around about 156 million American smartphones. There'll be some noise in that data, but it's now down to 150. So it's tailed off. So does that tell us something about TikTok can't get beyond 150 million whereas music streaming is hurtling towards or already past that 150 million, depending on whether you add serious XM into the mix or not. All these numbers are terrible things to say on a podcast. What I'm saying is the herbivores are now becoming carnivores. It's happening. You're seeing some services stall in their growth patterns. Other services race ahead. doesn't mean that we're eating each other's lunch. It means some people are getting fat and other people are getting hungry when it comes to this battle for subscriber growth. <laughs> Uh, Will, you know, a couple of minutes ago, we were talking about pricing and uh, how you, you envision vinyl prices going up to $50. Yet on the subscription side of things, we still have this, is, is the word timidity? Is that a proper word? We have this timidness. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that, that we, they are sticking to these very, very low prices. Why, is, why are these folks so timid? Why are they so afraid of raising prices, the DSPs, that is? And let's just be clear how low it is. If there's 2.3 people on a family plan in America, which is broadly speaking plausible, well, that's £6.50 per account holder each. How much does a beer cost in your home time, Mike? <laughs> well, With a tip? good, good, yeah, a good beer is $11. Right. So one beer, which based on my bladder lasts for about 30 minutes, costs almost twice what 100 million songs cost. Um, and I always like to remind listeners this whole 999 price point that we're stuck with in June 2023 was invented in December 2021. Sorry, December 2001, getting my dates wrong for good reason, to mirror the cost of a blockbuster video rental card. Now, one example I just want to give on this point because I could chew your ear off on this issue is if I look at my direct debits, Netflix has got me to 1599. I joined it at $7.99, now I'm paying $15.99. Okay, prices have gone up. Perhaps the product quality has gone up. Your vision quality has gone up. But um, I'm using it less. That's the interesting thing. i got to tell you, I'm using Netflix a lot less than I used to. Maybe I, I binge watch one show every two or three months as opposed to binging one show every month. It literally, my utility has gone down, but my price has doubled. With music streaming, my utility goes up. Music, podcasts, all of this more content, all of this more hours. 
yet the price in real terms keeps going down. And that's it's a double-edged sword. We've commoditized the product. Good. That's what was needed back in the ages of fighting piracy. We needed this solution. But I do think we've missed a trick on pricing the product that we present to the market. And I don't know how we solve it. Not with inflation in the economy and spending squeeze. If you did jack up prices, oh, we'll head a point. Let's just raise prices to $20 a month. Then what if we were dealing with net churn? We have never, in this you know 10-year revolution of music, experienced net churn. And if you remember when Netflix reported net churn, I think they got 100 subscribers in but lost 168. That was the ratio. That was the biggest stock market one day fall in Wall Street history. They're back up. It's not the end of the world. But just to reiterate, we have, as an industry, have never dealt with net churn. We don't want to. We have to approach this pricing dilemma being astutely aware of how to avoid net churn and subscribers. Yeah. I still think it's just so grossly underpriced for you know uh, the amount of content great music that you get for that price and now it's not just music it's you know some of them have audiobooks some of you know it's podcasts there's video there's all sorts of other things um i don't think and mike and i've talked about this i don't think i would leave a dsp because of a modest uh price increase i have playlists built there i i wonder you talk about churn. I don't think the churn would be as as drastic as some people think. No, so we've had Discover Weekly. I was there when we built it since twenty fifteen. Matthew Ogle. So let's just add that up. What's that? Seven, eight years now of Discover Weekly preparing us. You don't drop that relationship, especially if Mike's spending eleven dollars on a beer, which. I'm struggling to understand. If my math is correct, that means $30 doesn't get you three pints in Mike's local pub. Where are you drinking, my friend? He drinks good beer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I try to drink good beer when I drink beer. Um, I, but you've been, you've, been behind, you've been behind the door in, in one of these companies. And when pricing comes up, what is the, what is the conversation like? Um, let's, let's say at a Spotify or an Amazon when, when, they're, when they're saying no to, rising, to raising subscription prices. Well, I can give you one example. We're going to leave our respective home countries here, but I worked on the first ever price increase in streaming history, which was Argentina. Interesting economy. Inflation was reported at 35%, but people on the ground were telling me it was closer to 60%. But yeah, we doubled the price in Argentinian pesos. We priced it in local currencies, Spotify. Apple was priced in US dollars, by the way, and tripled the subscriber base. So... The debates that you're having in Argentina, all right, being a very outlier use case here, was should you raise prices aggressively now and less frequent going forward or less aggressively now, more frequent going forward? There's a transferable lesson about what to do about pricing there. So if Netflix told me every year they're going to raise prices, I would probably churn. Somehow they jumped me to fifteen ninety nine, and I stayed the course. But I don't like being told prices are going up, so just don't tell me that often would be my conclusion, but I'm just an end of one survey sample here. But there are lessons you can learn from looking around the world in terms of how, how to handle price increases. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, pro rata versus user-centric or market-centric. We see it every week. We report on these stories every week. There are people on both sides that claim that um, it will harm or help certain groups. Well, what's your view on the pro rata versus user-centric a discussion. If I can be blunt, those people you refer to are just talking out their arse. 
They really are. And I want to be up absolutely upfront. Your audience needs to hear this. You cannot do 65 page studies on user centric mapping that distribution model on a pro rata database for one very simple reason. If you change the rules, you change how the game is played. If you change the rules of football, or as you like to call soccer, <laughs> if you say the defender can no longer pass back to the goalkeeper and he can pick it up, which was introduced in 1995 or something, it changed completely how defenders played the game. If you change the rules of American football, gridiron, in terms of a two-point conversion versus a one-point conversion, you change the options for the quarterback to call it after a touchdown. So you, I want to stress changing the rules changes the game. You wheel back to the famous example we discussed last time. Streaming says you only get paid when you've been played for 30 uninterrupted seconds and you get paid a penny more for lasting a second more, which means those rules create a game where you write shorter songs and a chorus at the front. Completely rational response by songwriters. Avicii was the first to do this back in Sweden, 2013, 2014. So if we introduce user-centric, we're going to change how the game is played. And that's why I really want to stress these studies that you see getting flagged in the bulletins. Please remember that weird Scottish guy that Jay and Mike had on the show. Yeah, it's null and void. Secondly, let's just remind ourselves what we're dealing with here. We have had the same price point for money coming in for 22 years now, and we've had the same pro rata model for money going out for 22 years. And that means the law of averages, every song is worth the same. You just pull all the revenue generated in America last month with all the streaming data generated in America last month, divide one by the other, and if Jay and Mike get 1% of all the streams, they walk out the bank with 1% of all the cash. <clears throat> Lots of anomalies, lots of anomalies with that. If I'm a heavy user and you're a light user, then your light consumption is subsidizing my heavy usage. So you're literally paying artists that you didn't listen to. <coughs> Pardon my cough, no, that is the Canadian <clears throat> plume kicking in. Um, but then is it the lesser of all the evils? If we look at the user-centric model, it gets quite interesting. Um, you can have a situation on the user-centric, and certainly if you look at what SoundCloud is doing, where you could say to an artist that 10% of your fan base generated 70% of your revenues. And if you look at the product launches they've been rolling out there, the addendum to this is, and you can talk to them. So you might not like user-centric, but you might like fan distribution. And you might really like it if you can communicate with that 10% of true fans. Then it gets interesting as well. It'll work differently for different genres. It'll work differently for release schedules. Be wary of generalizations. Tattoo that to your forehead whenever you discuss this subject. But I think that distribution model is there as well. Um, and I, I think generally it's just a frustration where we've had the same rules in place for so long. Same price coming in, same distribution model out. We're trying to work out how can we deviate from the current model without breaking the system. Let's call it a deviation of pro rata, not either or. And do you think... Uh... Do you think that it just, you know, on the playing field, there is more of an interest in, in these deviations or is it, are, are people more or less still hap, not happy with the way things are, but aren't ready to change the rules just yet? Different departments will say different things. The most important department is one that nobody listens to, which on label side or streaming side are those people in the engine rooms, the unsung heroes who work in the royalty accounting departments. You know, they're just a, a back a back office function to most labels and streaming services. Trust me, they're worth their weight in gold. My colleague 
who worked in royalty accounting at Spotify previously. She worked at the Federal Reserve. How about that for a career change? Um, you know, I just admire her. I'm going to name check her, Shannon Nitroy, just to the hill in terms of what she's dealing with in terms of making sure Mike got paid what he should have got paid in amongst the other 110 million ISRC codes that I've got to monetize as well. It's not easy. Nobody gives these people thanks, but they are worth it. Now, when I look at this question, I think about Shannon Nitroy at Spotify and her equivalents, Apple, Amazon, YouTube, Universal, Sony, Warner, and across the board. What can you do with the pro rata model that doesn't cause those people to have a heart attack? Because if you break the royalty accounting systems, then no matter how aspirational your goals are, you've done more harm than good, period. Here's Tom of the weather, debate over. And that's really, really crucial. So it's I start this whole debate starting with royalty accounting first, you know, land of milk and honey aspirations of making the world a better place, a distant second. Let's talk a little bit about this uh, paper that you wrote I, recently. I found it really fascinating. Uh, glocalization, which sounds like uh, localization and globalization kind of uh, compound together. Talk about what that means and and really kind of what it means for the U.S. Yeah, it's it's got big ramifications to the U.S. Firstly, the word is awful. I apologize for it. And if you have a Scottish accent, it sounds even worse. <laughs> Um, but it is a hybrid of globalization and localization. And it was invented by Professor Roland Robinson, who taught at the University of Aberdeen, an American sociologist who went to Aberdeen. You've seen the weather up in Aberdeen. They've got two seasons, winter and June up there. It's bad. But still, he went there and in 1995 introduced this word in a very, you know, hidden sociology textbook uh, that we actually managed to dig up from a public library when we wrote this work where he was looking at Japanese farming practices and how you have this kind of micro-marketing of local markets, even if you have a global supply chain. And some of you folks are in California, a lot of your listeners are California. The original observation he gave was the rise of ethnic supermarkets and restaurants in California in 1995. Now, I'm not from California, but I'm going to hazard a guess. He was looking at the Koreans in Koreatown in Los Angeles and seeing that they weren't going to Starbucks or McDonald's they were going to Korean restaurants and Korean delis instead. That's my guess. And I don't want to tread on anyone's toes here, but why did they reject globalization in favor of localization when they had left Seoul maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago? That is globalization. What do we see? So the paperback of my book, which you guys have been a big champion of, TARS and Economics as a hardback, flipped to called Pivot as a paperback. Hudson Travel and W.H. Smith said, we love the book, we want to support it, but books with economics in our titles don't sell in airports. So we had to change the title, change the cover. Interesting bit of knowledge there. Um, so it came out as a paperback called Pivot, and then I was on the BBC One show, and they said they had this real good feel-good story for the One show. They said, hey, Will, isn't it great that the top 10 songs in Britain last year were all British bands? First time in 60 years we've had a clean sweep. And me being a doer pessimistic Scottish economist said, not so fast, because the top 10 in Germany were all German, the top 10 in Italy were all Italian, and the top 10 in Spain were all Spanish language, but all Latin American. Oh, this is a European phenomenon. Not the best way to do an interview in a BBC One show, but the fact that all everyone's jaws hit the floor made me think, I've got something here. So I then proceeded to study it further, and I teamed up with Chris Della Riva, who'd be a great guest for your show. He did a fantastic blog piece about why there's no key changes in music anymore. 
So for those who know Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer, you know it's got the most famous key change in the history of musical repertoire, that final push of the chorus, three minutes, 20 seconds in. Try doing that in a karaoke. You just can't get up there. It's like you have to sing the whole song again and that two thirds up. Um, he did some great work. It's like, I want to work with you to hack into the subject. We call the paper Globalization Within and Across European Music Streaming Services. We study 10 countries, the big ones and the small ones. And what we find basically is localizations on the rise. Local language is dominating the top of the charts in all of these European markets and, Jay, in their mother tongue. Swedish artists have dominated Swedish charts for a long time, but now they're dominating in Sweden. In Swedish. It's got twists and turns. If I look at the Polish chart today, the top 40 songs in Poland are all Polish, but they're all performing hip-hop, which is an American genre. So you got perhaps globalization of genre, but localization of artists happening there. Um, like I said, with Spain, it's all Spanish language. In Portugal, it's all Brazilian. In fact, the Portuguese government got in touch about my paper and said, you're absolutely right, because we're worried about all our Portuguese people speaking Brazilian versions of Portuguese. I said, that's great news because it's so much more beautiful when Brazilians say beleza than when you compare it to how a Portuguese person would say that beautiful word. It's a lot in there. All right, what does that mean for an English-speaking audience like your morning coffee? It means the competitive advantage the English language has enjoyed in exporting media products for the past 70 years ain't over, but it ain't going to be easy anymore. And let me turn it back on my interviewers here. Britain used to knock out global pop stars two, three a year for years. A Coldplay here, a Snow Patrol there, a Adele here. Can you name for me one global pop star success that we've developed since Dua Lipper in 2017? Harry Styles? Shut up. That was 2011. <laughs> and, by the way, he's marketed out in New York. But he, he predates Dua Lipa by five, six years. Dua Lipa was at Parley Hill High School and Harry Styles broke. Oh, my goodness. It gets tricky. Yeah. I challenge Universal with this question. They shouted out the 1975. Wrong. That was 2016. Yeah. Louis Capaldi comes out of Universal Germany, but I don't think he's filling stadiums in America. Now, so and is I'm, this, I'm offering a bottle of whiskey if you guys can prove me no, wrong. You're probably right. It's just I have such a warped sense of time because of the pandemic and other things, things that I thought were just a few years ago are actually obviously – I know oh, it's maybe yeah. lockdown or something, but 2017 was a long time and we've had a drought and you guys are having a drought and the Canadians are also beginning to have a drought as well. So for the English speaking world, it just ain't going to be easy anymore to top those European charts. And is this true for all media? Uh, you know, the folks in movies and, and television and gaming? Similar? Mikey, baby, that. That's a great question. Um, I'll give you two quick pivots on that one. Firstly, I have a box in the LSE paper, which I'd love it if you could share with your audience, um, which looks at how Spain and Latin America relate to eyeball content, TV content, and earhole content, that being music. It's clear that Latin America is exporting the music to Spain, but Netflix has invested in Madrid Content City. It's the biggest film production hub on the planet, and it's about to double in size. So they're expect to exporting their eyeball content to Latin America. So you have this kind of transatlantic trade. That sort of stuff is really interesting. Get out of your comfort zone of music, have a look at what else is going on, and you'll see different stories emerge. But one really important footnote to the paper, and it is a footnote, came from Chris Deering. If you remember the Sony PlayStation, 
Chris Deering, the father of the PlayStation, president of Sony, imagine starting a year in 1996 with this kind of meaningless console gaming platform. And by the end of that year, you've sold 410 million consoles around the world. It's a story that nobody else could write. Um, he gave me a fascinating observation. I just want to run it past you guys and your audience here. He said, you know, he's been a mentor to me for much of my career. I gave him an advanced look at the paper. I said, you got anything you can offer on this? He said, when Sony PlayStation had SingStar Karaoke Challenge, and they offered that around the world, they always noticed that the Swedish version sold better in Sweden than the English version. I want to unpack this for you. Gaming was interactive back then. You know, it was an interactive console. You played with your game. Music was not. It was a CD in a case that broke your fingers when you tried to open it. And gaming offered you choice. You could sing the global hits in English on SingStar, or you could go down the chart and find the Swedish non-hits and sing them instead. So what he was trying to tell me, I think, is 20 years before you stumbled on globalization, we could already see it in gaming. I may have got this wrong, but he's a, a big inspiration on my life, Mr. Chris Deering, and I want to thank him for that, because that's telling the music industry something. This was bottlenecked. This was suppressed. Now we have interactive music, and we're offering choice. We're empowering the consumer for choice. We are seeing today, in 2023, what he saw at SingStar at the turn of the millennium. That's super interesting. You know, I'm also noticing that things as basic as the configuration um, are altered uh, by the the country that is played in. For example, you know, Bad Bunny, over 90% of consumption is streaming. But you take Taylor Swift and, you know, a third of her consumption is physical. And I'm wondering mm. if you have any insights as to... Not, not, by the way, sorry, not if they don't have record players. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say they actually used them. It's like your book analogy. Um, can you speak a little bit to the different behaviors of, you know, these different localized marketplaces? Yeah, there's a lot we could unpack there. Um, I think what... I think one of the biggest observations for me with regards to these globalized behaviors is we go to France, okay? Alonzi, we're going to go to France. The French chart has never been this French in history. And it's thanks to unregulated global streaming platforms. That is, previously, with heavily regulated linear platforms and retail shops, they couldn't achieve what unregulated markets have successfully delivered, which is domestic prominence. So in terms of how are these markets behaving, I think we can get into the reasons why in a second, but I want to point out the regulation point here, which is free markets have achieved what regular markets have failed, domestic prominence. Now, in terms of why, I would like to acknowledge the presence of a couple of people I've presented it to. One person um, made an observation in New York to me, which is we have... I'm going to quote her here, a claustrophobia of abundance. That is, because we've got so much choice out there, 110,000 songs a day, two new podcast shows every minute, what the F? Because we, we just want what's closest to us. And this takes me out of my comfort zone of economics. This is psychology at play now. And it's for these disciplines to make sense of what we've done with the paper. Another person I met in Toronto made a really inspirational remark to me. She said, as a result of lockdown, we're all involved in global calls, global content, global interactions, global time zones. We're all up till God knows what hour doing global VCs. 
Now we're out of lockdown. We just want to get back to what's closest to home. So it's a spring coil effect. The pendulum has swung back from what the pandemic did to us and put it much more extreme. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. But at the back end of it all, music's never been as cheap to produce or distribute than before. The local offices are getting far more headcount and resources than ever before. And the consumers are empowered with far more choice than ever before. So we have this flywheel effect of devolved power from global streaming services and global labels to the satellite offices and an empowering effect from the consumer to choose what they actually want. And what we're learning is they don't want English language hits no more. They want local hits performed in their mother tongue. I wonder if the U.S. is the opposite in that K-pop, Latin music, um, world music is becoming so much more popular in the United States. Is it is the pendulum swinging the other direction in the U S where we're not uh, having more and more English speaking repertoire? I think you're touching on something which I actually wrote about in the first chapter of Tarzan economics. Now retitled pivot, which is globalization, not the local version, the globalization can happen within countries as well as across countries. And it might just be the case that because America is so multicultural and so multicultural aware, if I can say that too, that you can have the success of all of these different genres within its, within its own borders. So you have globalization within the American music industry. We have globalization happening across the European, across the European music industry. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit, Will, if you don't mind. Uh, mm-hmm. Jay and I have been certainly talking about AI music a lot lately, uh, which, of course, in itself could be a, a complete special uh, by itself. Uh, just maybe kind of broadly talk about the threats and the opportunities of AI and what that's mm-hmm. going to do to our business. I'm sorry if you can hear the sound of my keyboard here because I'm just tapping that question into ChatGPT. I'll read you <laughs> the um, Threat an opportunity and historical context. And the threat is for me consent. The idea that somebody could deep fake my voice and put words in my mouth and put that out there on a media platform, quite frankly, scares seven shades of shit out of me. And I want to make sure the lawyers get on top of that one. And that's for them to solve, not for an economist, in terms of how to handle this consent factor. On the opportunity side, um, I think the concept of catalog uplift, which if you want to cite for your audience here, a famous case study that I published in Music Business Worldwide involving the band Imagine Dragons. How do you get the release of new content, a new Imagine Dragons album, to drive demand in old content, the original debut? That is the secret source of what everybody in this business should be trying to work out. You know, I always like to cite Eminem as an artist, which, you know, the purpose of a new Eminem single or album has got nothing to do with that new single or album. It's to remind you of that phenomenal catalogue of work that he released in the late 90s and early noughties, which does so well every time he drops something new out there. So if you think about Oasis, as an example, there was an AI track, Oasis Lee, which came out recently, which got Liam Gallagher and Noel Gallagher back together again, something that humans could never achieve. So credit to the technology. And Liam gave it a thumbs up on social media. It's like, great, rocking, love this. The catalog went up. So if we can work out how low-cost, high-output AI music can drive interest in the original human being's catalog, then we're off at the races. You know, let's stop worrying and start maximizing. Historical context, I really want to give you this as an example. It's a bit technical, but the GitHub co-pilot story, long story short, 
was that this new bit of tech came along, which could manipulate code out of code, essentially. And it made coders feel like it made redundant. Oh my God, the profession of coding is over. Then this machine learning tool is going to replace the need to have coders. That was in a space of three months, we've gone from threat to opportunity. Today, I speak to coding friends. And they say they're four times as more productive thanks to GitHub Copilot than they were previously. And to wrap this point up, the best lesson I ever learned when studying economics came from Alan Blinder, Federal Reserve Governor, quite an outspoken one at the time. And he once said to me, capitalism is when you employ somebody else to cut your grass because you can do something more productive with your time. Think about that. You might enjoy cutting grass. You might love gardening. But if you can do something more productive with your time, then do gardening, employ a gardener. And I think AI, machine learning, large language models, they're just one big F off gardener. As we sort of wind things down, I really want to make sure we talk about uh, the area of the business where a lot of artists make a majority of their revenue, and that's live. You know, whether it's with merch, mm -hmm. whether it's with the ticket sales, whatever it is. That business has evolved quite a bit. And and I've listened to you talk about how it's evolved. Can you touch on that a little bit, the, the live music business? Yeah. I got a five-word summary called Go Big or Stay Home. And what I mean by that is I first started modeling the British live music industry, and this translates toe for toe, blow for blow with the American one, way back in 2009. And on the year of our Olympics, 2012, I had the business as 1.2 billion in box office spend, all granular data delivered by PRS Music, which licensed every live event. So I built the first and only live music model there is on the planet. You can't do it in America because the PROs don't do the same type of work. Um, but 1.2 billion spend and a fifth of that, a fifth of that went to stadiums and festivals. Today, we're looking at 1.7, 1.8 billion spend. Over half of that is going to stadiums and festivals. Just to reiterate what that means, that's a bigger share of a much bigger pie. That's a humongous share of a massive pie of cash. And what that means for me is maybe Mike and Jay visit me in London. I'm like, hey, should we go and see this you know, up and coming band at the Roundhouse? It's 30 quid a ticket each. You know, I'll cover you guys. Mike can buy the beers because we don't charge $11 a beer. <laughs> um, you know, let's just go and see this upcoming event. Like, no, I'm just going to watch Netflix instead. But if I said to you, what about we go and see Beyonce on one of her six nights at White Hart Lane for £140 a ticket, we're all quids in. So we love going to big stuff and spending big bucks, but we're not going to small stuff. And you know, where is that a concern? There's a famous chart, and I will give you the image to share with your audience in your blog notes, but I did a, a piece in The Economist in 2015, I think, which looked at the average age of festival headliners. And you can look at the summer billing this year. It's going up, and I'm not going to make an ageist remark here. Love older artists, love young artists, love heritage, love catalogue, love the legacy value they can bring. But we're not seeing bands in their early 20s headline festivals in this country anyway. Those days are gone. Uh, we're seeing Elton John headline a festival. We're seeing Lionel Richie, which is a bit bizarre, headline a festival. So, again, I want to be very astutely sensitive to making an ageist remark here, but the conveyor belt of who's going to fill those stadiums and festivals of tomorrow, especially if we haven't broken a global pop star since Dua Lipa in 2017, there is a little bit of a twist to the tail there in terms of 
the business is bigger, but it's going to bigger shows. I'm concerned about the conveyor belt. And if I may just ask a last question with you, Will, mm. uh, sort of along these lines, if you are a senior executive at a DSP or a major music company, what puts a smile on your face looking forward as you put your head on the pillow at night and go to sleep? But also what makes you wake up in a cold sweat? What What are the DSPs and the major music companies please, should be pleased about? What should they be scared about? Well, I think... The mission statement within a company, if well-crafted, can be the answer to that question. And let's say there's four big DSPs and there's three big record labels. There'll be seven very different, almost conflicting or contradicting mission statements. But the one I like most, and a hat tip to Lucien Grange and team in Santa Monica at Universal Music Group here, is to affect culture. I can't verbatim quote their mission statement, but it's very much focused on can you change? Can you positively affect culture? And if you look at how they brought Spanish language repertoire to Spanish speakers within the United States of America, that's not a bad piece of evidence to show that you've ticked that box and you've affected culture. You know, if I look at Spotify back in 2017, we had this huge success with Dutch language hip hop, which you can't pronounce with a Scottish accent when you hear Dutch being spoken. But I remember that one day where I went to the European Commission to say, tell them that Drake was the biggest artist on the planet on Spotify, but he was the eighth biggest hip-hop artist in Holland, and the seven above him were Dutch rapping in Dutch. You've affected culture. So if I go back to my ethos in music as a DJ, as a producer, I always quote Mike G from the Jungle Brothers, which is our job is to get music across without crossing over. How do you get that culture across an audience that's never heard it before without diluting its integrity? And if you can achieve that, then you should be smiling. Nice. nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's always such a pleasure. Uh, we appreciate you. Uh, continued success. And uh, if you haven't picked up the book, uh, make sure you do. It's one of those books that I've actually read. It doesn't just sit on my uh, bookshelf to impress <laughs> yeah, my 20%. friends. <laughs> it's a one must last, read. One last thing, if, I, if it's okay, sure. I just want to introduce some music to your listeners, Please. if that's okay. Yeah. Oh, so if you're on Mixcloud or Soundcloud, um, searching up my name, Will Page, and the mix title, 2023 Believe in Humanity. Um, I'm almost at 38,000 on Mixcloud, which sets a global record in two weeks to get to that number. is phenomenal. Congratulations. I know you've got thousands of listeners, so if a fraction of them were to stream it, you'll take me past 40, and then I have broken the record. But 2023 Believe in Humanity, where does that song title come from? A track by an artist called Carol King, which was released 50 years ago to the day, JMI. 50 wow. years since our Central Park concert. And the greatest honor for a kid who's been doing mixtapes in his bedroom in Edinburgh since puberty is Carol King gives the introduction speech to my oh, mix. Oh, that's amazing. And that for me is a coming of age moment. Yeah. To, to, to be crafting these mixtapes for years now, and now Carol King's introducing it. But yeah, an hour of, of, of musical bliss seamlessly integrated through DJ Mix. Fantastic. Please, please check it out. Mixcloud, Soundcloud. Awesome. We will do that for sure. Thank you again, Will. We sure appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me on. I love the podcast. Love what you're uh, doing. Thank you, brother. Um, by the way, I never miss an episode of uh, Bubble Trouble. Um, I do it on my, my morning walks. It's You guys play off each other so well. It's uh, just a, a joy. Else? 
all credit to Richard Kramer, my co-presenter, a New Yorker who constantly teaches me and our audience about financial misbehavior in the markets. Silicon Valley Bank being a great example. Why did those banks have buy notices on their analyst notes on the months, weeks, and days running up to its collapse? What are these analysts doing? Are they praising or are praising? <laughs> but just a shout out to Richard Kramer, great presenter to work with. If I can impersonate a New York accent on your podcast, which is going to be appalling, but he does have this wonderful expression, which your audience will love. He says, he has this snarling New York accent. He says, you know what happens when your stock falls by 90%? That meant it fell by 80% and it halved. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Uh, that's not bad, actually. The past six months. <laughs> That's that's not a bad accent, Will. I think you were a little uh, You're a little hard on yourself. I held my notes. I'm doing yeah. it. I held my notes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Will. Take care of yourself. We'll talk soon. Thank, Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Mike. All right. See, See you later. Hi, I'm Carol King, and I'm here to celebrate the launch of DJ Will Cage's new mix. 2023, Believe in Humanity. Back in 1973, I wrote, Maybe I'm wrong, but I want to believe in humanity. Apparently, I was hedging my bet. But I do believe we have to be kind and helpful and good and brave and act as if our goals are possible because that's the only way they are. In that spirit, I'm still fighting to preserve forest ecosystems and slow climate change. So I guess I do believe in humanity. Prove me right and enjoy the mix.